Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Doug Farr. Doug Farr is a founding principal and president of Farr Associates. Doug was the founding chair of the U.S. Green Building Council's Lead ND Core Committee and a charter member of the Congress for New Urbanism. He is the author of Sustainable Urbanism and the Just Out Sustainable Nation. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Courtney. Let's get right to it. Tell us about the new book. Why now and why should people read it? Thanks for asking. So this book, I believe, is essential reading for planners and anyone associated with neighborhood planning, economic development, and that includes mayors, developers, city council, neighborhood activists, and frankly, Americans today. Uh, given our turbulent times, I think it's got a little of something for all of those people. But but in terms of the book, what's it about? Um, the book is about some big ideas. One is it's an operating manual for neighborhoods. So that may seem kind of crazy, but um, the view of the book is that we are a country of neighborhoods, maybe even a half million neighborhoods, and that we all live in them, but we don't know how to even turn on the switch. How does my neighborhood come alive? How do we work as a unit? Oftentimes there's a disconnect between what I feel like my neighborhood boundaries are and the legislation, the legislator that serves me, for example. So how does that all work? Second part of it for planners that's really important about Sustainable Nation is the book is designed to have planners, when they show up to do a project, to join a conversation in process rather than have to start a conversation from scratch. So my ideal is that this book, the operating manual for neighborhoods, is in every neighborhood in America. There's at least two copies. Friends are reading it and talking to each other across a table and have started a conversation about how they can improve their neighborhood going forward, its strengths, what could be better about it, and that when the planner shows up to do a, quote, plan, you're enhancing and building on things that other people have already started. So you're not the outsider coming in, you're helping them. People now have invited you to help them with their plan. And then the third big idea that the book uh, is about is about time. So the book does a very deep dive in long social trends, big ones that planners would be concerned with. Sprawl, for example. Obesity is another one. Um, climate change and decarbonizing our economy, those three big ones, all of which became problems over generations and go away as problems also over generations. So time, time is a factor, and given how long some of these long trends cha- take, and they manifest themselves in everyday plans that we do for a, a specific plan, a comprehensive plan, a zoning code, and so on, you want them to make progress quickly. So the book focuses on how to speed up the pace of change. And in terms of the content of the book, it's in three parts. One is, where are we now and where do we want to go? And that's done fairly quickly with infographics to capture global trends, global trends on reducing poverty, which has gone down by half. Did you know that? Global poverty has gone down by half in the last generation. Diseases are on the run, lots of progress. So even though you read the papers and it seems all very depressing, it's actually kind of the best time ever to be a human being. So that's kind of cool. You didn't know that. Uh, but we can do better. So kind of there's a, a series of 
uh, stories about what the future could be like, how it could be better. Um, the middle part of the book is about sort of theories of change, um, how long it takes, how long it can take, how, how we can make it go faster through the use of accelerants. Um, so we could talk about that, I hope. And then the third part of the book are the patterns. So these are 70 patterns provided by different experts, many of whom we've worked with in our consulting practice, experts at all kinds of things. But these patterns provide uh, ready to act on little stories, if you will, about how that you can apply either in your neighborhood or in your professional community that move the ball forward, that make your community or your practice community a better place. This idea of accelerants is really interesting to me, and I saw uh, in one part you compare it to the anti-smoking campaign, the idea that if we just let something run its own course, um, it's going to be too big of a problem before we solve it, that there has to be an intervention of sorts to actually achieve a goal that has you know, almost unanimous support theoretically. How does that apply in the case of neighborhoods and places? Great question. So... Um, we studied the smoking cessation um, as one of the best documented social trends in America. In 1900, the cigarettes had just been invented. No Americans smoked. Uh, two and a half generations later, 42%, I believe it was, of adult Americans smoked. That was the peak year. And it's going down uh, every year. Uh, we're down something like 17% of adult American smoke, but by about 2040, it'll be under 5%. And we could say that it is, will have gone away. But that was two and a half generations to peak and three and a half generations to go away. And so if you think about that and say, well, what if we decarbonized our economy at the same rate that we rid ourselves of cigarettes? Well, guess what? We, we really need to get carbon out of our economy in about 35 years. Uh, but if we did it at the rate of smoking, it'd be 135 years. And that was the genesis for why we needed accelerants. So when I think about the audience, one of the primary audiences for this book, and of course, as a planner, I'm going to think about your, your typical municipal planner. They're busy. They have a bunch of things to do. If we're to charge them with decarbonizing the economy, what does that look like? And what are some of the first steps a planner might take? in their daily work uh, to make sure they're contributing in a positive way? That's a wonderful question. So the accelerants that we came up with are, are based around the idea that people don't change because you poked them one time or you sent them an email. People change when the culture around them changes, and so the accelerants are rarely effective if you apply them one at a time. But if you apply them all together and people are getting cues and prompts from many sectors of their life, that's when it really clicks. The analogy to smoking here is there were, we all remember when this happened, there was an anti-smoking campaign. Labels went on the side of uh, you know, uh, you know, cigarette packs. Uh, the smoking was prevented in bars. And then uh, it was only when all of those things were applied together with a high tax on the cost of cigarettes, those four things together, then smoking started to plummet. And so to do one or two things isn't enough. So applying all the accelerants together is, is the tool. I will just say your listeners should probably order the book to get the full detail. Ah, here. And that's not, enough. that's not, it's not a dodge, <laughs> but I'll just say, um, the six accelerants we identified, and I can talk about a couple of them just as kind of prompt. So, uh, when it comes to say decarbonizing, uh, the economy, uh, for starting in Chicago, where we are sitting, um, 70% of our city's carbon comes from buildings. And so that seems like a pretty rich area to attack, to kind of decarbonize. So, what is the driver there? Well, one could be 
pilgrimage sites. Wouldn't it be great if we could actually see a building that used so much less energy to prove that it's viable not in Europe or not in Portland, Oregon or Seattle, Washington, but here in Chicago where it's frigid cold? How could it possibly work here? Well, if you can see it with your own eyes and you walked to it or drove to it or took, took a bus to it, that makes it real. Then you'd want your profession to be talking to you about how important this is, the professional ethics, your, life, your uh, licensing maybe is beginning to require it, beginning to have you think about how your practice needs to pay attention to this. Campaigns is another one, which is smoking. Uh, you know, the public health community is really good at campaigns. So whether it's attacking obesity, attacking smoking, attacking childhood obesity, these kinds of things, they stage it as a campaign. They set an end date and a target of a percentage of reduction or something like that. So all of these long trends lend themselves to campaigns. So anyway, and there's three other accelerants in the book. So it's, it's pretty detailed, but I will just say the advice is don't do just one thing. Probably don't even do it just by yourself. Um, um, but it's, I really, I will just say we approach this with a kind of just eyes open. Where will this lead us? This research about accelerants. And we're delighted to find that once we had studied it all, uh, my pessimism turned to optimism. And I felt like we had sort of unlocked some insights. And so um, I, far be it for me to communicate them in a quick, quick podcast, but um, I hope the readers read it and give us feedback on whether we told the story well. As you mentioned, we're here in Chicago, which is known as a city of neighborhoods. Um, I'm not sure everyone identifies, you know, when you think across the entire country, that everyone identifies with a neighborhood. So let's talk about scale and uh, what it means. If the argument is dependent on identifying with a neighborhood, what does that look like at different scales? Sure. So uh, neighborhoods is one of those great terms because it means something different to everybody. So uh, I think many of your listeners will be familiar with the whole tradition in physical planning of the neighborhood unit, which we, you know, trace back to the RPA uh, plan of 1926. Uh, the Clarence Perry plan, the neighborhood unit. And so it's been you know, tugged at and modified uh, over the many decades. That wasn't the only diagram. Many preceded it, many followed it. In the book, we do a taxonomy of neighborhood diagrams. So if you somehow in the world encounter a neighborhood diagram, you can identify who wrote it, from what era, and what's descended from what. So that's kind of a helpful guide for planners. Interesting. But in addition, we have a pattern written by Professor Emily Tallon of the University of Chicago called Everyday Neighborhoods. And it's a brilliant set of insights. She has a book coming out, too, on neighborhoods, so I'll I'll recommend that. Um, But her pattern got reduced down to a little game, which we put in the book, and it's called Is It a Neighborhood? So it starts, the first question is, does the place you live have a name? If it does, you proceed to question two. If it doesn't, at start over and figure, give yourself a neighborhood. Question two, do people generally agree on how big it is, its extent? If they do, you proceed. If it doesn't, at go back and get some coherence about where it starts and where it stops. And so what the, the psychological neighborhood that people perceive is routinely in conflict with the ideal physical size of a neighborhood that planners or urban designers lay out, you know, and I think the constant there is that the the physical plan neighborhood is larger in area than what people psychologically feel attached to. Interesting. So switching gears for a minute, you were born and raised in Detroit. I'm curious how that shaped your interest in architecture and urbanism. Growing up in Detroit, I had the ideal childhood. 
I grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of parks in it, and I went to high school downtown at Cass Tech, which is a citywide school. Um, I graduated in 1975. My class was half black, half white. I had the best friends, the best time. Uh, but on my walk from high school downtown to catch the bus home every day, I went through downtown Detroit, and buildings were coming down every year. And these were gorgeous buildings, theaters, high-rises, all this kind of stuff, and I was saddened by the loss of my city. And so I, I had an early yearning to figure out how I, what I could do to help. At the same time, the first uh, oil price shock happened in 1973 and 74, and many of your listeners will be too young to remember it, but basically overnight the price of oil went up times four. And Detroit at the time manufactured cars that got seven, eight, nine, ten miles per gallon. They were gas hogs. And so the, in, the hometown industry, car making, was under the gun to figure out how to make things more fuel efficient. So energy efficiency was also kind of in the air when I was in high school. Um, I remembered only as a late undergraduate that I'd written a paper in junior year of high school about a, an architect and who had this funny job called city planner, a guy named Alex Pollock. And I wrote a paper on him, which I found years later. And oh my goodness, I became Alex Pollock. <laughs> That's wonderful. So what's your prediction for Detroit and or your best hope? Uh, Detroit uh, will be a welcome place when Florida and Texas are underwater. We will have 20% of the world's fresh water supply. We still have great bones. We're in a great location. So over the long term, I'm sanguine. Um, in, the, in the middle term, uh, Mayor Duggan, who was just reelected for a second term, is doing a great job. He's a taking names and kicking butt kind of guy, getting stuff done. In, in partnership with Dan Gilbert, who is a private sector billionaire who has bought and renovated much of the downtown, the city is on the front pages and, and seemingly moving forward. Dan Gilbert, oddly, has the easier job. The mayor and his planning director, Maurice Cox, have the harder job, which is how do you bring vitality back to the remaining 141, acre, 141 square miles of Detroit? It's a lot harder. It's an older population, a poorer population with a depreciated housing stock. I think they're going about it the right way by prioritizing some of the better neighborhoods and starting there. Um, but there's more demands for resources and time and attention than there really are available. So it's, it's, it's hard because people, you know, have, are, everyone would love everything to advance evenly and you got to start somewhere. But long term, it's a good location with good bones. Um, cities was established in 1701. It's older than New Orleans. It's going to be here another 300 years into the future. So um, I'm a long thinker, as you know. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful. That reminds me of a story I've heard you tell, and it really sticks out to me because it's one of the few examples where I've heard of a plan, a plan that you were authoring, becoming a campaign issue, which I love. I wish people cared so much about planning and were so connected to it that it was a top campaign issue, and I'm talking about the town of Normal. And so um, when you mentioned Dan Gilbert and the mayor of Detroit, it, um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on leadership and civic boosters, oftentimes that's the only way things get done. Uh, of course, if you have one or two powerful civic boosters who are pulling all the strings, it can also be detrimental. Mm -hmm. So do you have other thoughts on that subject or personal experiences to share? 
Well, well, Courtney, thanks for remembering that conversation. And I think it was a proud moment in my career when um, it became our plan for Uptown Normal became an election issue. And two council people were going at it. And the accusation was that the other one was insufficiently committed to the FAR plan for Uptown Normal. Yes, I love it. That was delightful. That should happen every time. But I think your question gets to a bigger reality, which is when we do our plans, we are on the hunt for the champion that's going to carry it forward. And whether in the extreme it's a Dan Gilbert, a billionaire that doesn't really need your help to get it done more often, um, places are leadership starved, resource starved, plan starved, implementation starved. And so you work with whoever is there. And the, you know, the, one of the things that I'm sure you'll get to is the planning profession, what we're doing well. One thing I think we're doing well is community engagement. We're better at it than we ever have been. We have more technologies and techniques and all this sort of stuff. I think the, the kind of next layer back is uh, there's communicating to people at large. There is connecting with the leaders that can carry it forward. And that's something that we really work hard to find those people, nurture them if they aren't kind of fully aware of the lingo or the, you know, the kind of how you sell it or communication in the duration of our contract, we're trying to bring them along. So that, that to me is a frontier issue for the profession and certainly in our practice. In my opinion, not even um, seek them out, but create leaders. Um, I don't think that's something, I think planners are positioned to do that, but may not realize it or have the resources to do so. But yeah, well, that's that's a great thing. And I think sometimes leaders are created um, when you give them something to aim at, uh, which gets us back to this book, Sustainable Nation, which has 70 patterns uh, on all kinds of topics. And my uh, kind of the other kind of value that the bring, book brings forward is that while there's lots of urgent things to work on, you know, carbon, obesity, sprawl, whatever, there's there's lots of good work to be done and it's all good. And so if you're not the carbon person, that's cool. Are you any good at throwing a party? Because we need that too. Uh, are you a gardener? Cool. Because we need, you know, we have some choices there. Um, hey, do you like riding buses? We, we got a role for you, whatever it is. So the 70 patterns, in my mind, take a potentially unlimited supply of leaders around the country, neighborhood leaders, and gives them a lot of targets to, to aim at uh, and to connect their passion to making a difference on their block or in their everyday neighborhood. So you and I have discussed a renewed commitment to equity and inclusion. I think it's safe to say that we are going to demand more from ourselves, our work, and the organizations where we spend our time. Why is that important to you and what does it look like? Uh, Well, equity is just bedrock. You just there's no getting around it. Maybe we ignored it for a long time. Um, the the time to do that is past, so it's the new norm. Um, I serve on the board of served on the board of the Congress for New Urbanism, and now serve on the board of Eco Districts, which are two not for profits nationally that have really uh, tried to uh, bring equity and inclusion to the center of what they do, and it's absolutely the right thing. It requires new skills. I think it requires different conversations. It sometimes requires difficult conversations. And so um, if you didn't get it in school and you aren't an empathetic person and you're not trained as a social worker, um, it seems like we have some training to do. We all need to learn you know, how to lead a conversation or even support a conversation in a lot of these things. So in our practice, we've tackled a corner of this that I, I think we also have talked about, you and I, 
um, you know, oftentimes we are brought in to prepare a neighborhood plan or a transit-oriented development plan for a community. Uh, one of the key strategies there is often to provide a range of housing types different from what exists in that place or in that town at a given time. There's a lot of fear that these different housing types might be rental apartments or multifamily, that they will bring in an undesirable element from outside, and that can be coded language for lots of things. As a consultant, you aren't free to stop the meeting and say, excuse me, ma'am or sir, what, do you re- what are you really getting at? So you can't solve it. But what you can do, and, and one of the insights in, that's incorporated in Sustainable Nation are the insights gained from behavioral economics, really about the quirks in our minds. We are not rational people. We are tribal people. We perceive things in kind of distorted ways. We like our opinions to be validated rather than challenged, all of these things. So when you're brought in, uh, often on behalf of a developer or municipality, say, I'm here to make a plan, which is coded language for I'm here to change things, uh, that's a bad place to start. But on the housing conversation, we've started the conversation differently, which is uh, rather than ask, do you like this housing? We start by asking this question. Tell me the first place you lived when you left your parents' house. Did you buy the Taj Mahal or more likely did you start renting with roommates? Guess what? Everyone rented with roommates. Okay, cool. So everyone in this room was a renter. Next question. Tell me, where will your children, if you have them now or plan to have them, where do you think the first place they will live when they leave your house? Will they be buying the Taj Mahal? No, they will be renters with roommates. So why are we so persistently opposed to renters, right? You were all them and your children will be them and your friends were them. So, so those kinds of, if you start the conversation that way from the center of where people are concerned themselves, their children, their families, their friends, their neighbors, uh, that's a different conversation. And I think it frames it in a way that uh, minimizes, I hope, minimizes resistance to change and fear of outsiders. Yeah, a colleague said to me recently that equity is a freight train. And that statement has really stuck with me. Um, And that's part of the reason of my renewed commitment is I think a lot of maybe why we don't put equity front and center is unintentional, but the time is now and you can either be on the train or get run over by it, frankly. You know, I I think of equity as maybe another manifestation of just how we're wired. We, it served us well for the last 10 million years coming out of the savannas and whatever to be tribal, to say we're a loyal clan of 50 or 100 and we're going to you know, defend one another against all outsiders. So that's how we're wired. And we should perpetuate behaviors that allowed our ancestors and our elders to survive to this point. We should just do tomorrow should look exactly like today because we're all still alive. And that, that conservatism against change made sense when we were in the wild, right? But in a changing world where we are about to splat up against some real hard barriers and some deadlines, both as a country and as a, as a species, um, when change is forced upon you, those are sort of un, unadaptive uh, responses to things. So I think equity feels like aspects of that same thing. People different from us is part of it. Um, wanting to believe that you got to where you did just on your own merits and you didn't start at third base, you know, those kinds of things, those are all biases. And so, you know, one of the things that, again, makes me kind of hopeful in writing Sustainable Nation, we have several pages devoted to just explaining these, explaining and illustrating heuristics, these kind of quirks and distortions of the brain. 
And I feel like I hope that pretty quickly into the elementary and junior high school you know, curriculum that kids learn that nobody's rational and that you begin to learn to how to identify these quirks in yourself um, as a way of kind of improving as you go forward. Let's put all our hopes and dreams on that next generation. Um, you and I also discussed recently a philosophy that your firm is adopting around Luke Skywalker versus Yoda. What does that mean? Yeah, Luke Skywalker versus Yoda. So there's a really cool book making the rounds in our office called Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller. And he tells his the story he tells is a good one. I think that your listeners will appreciate. So basically change often really you can translate it into an epic journey that someone is taking. And the the journey, the person taking the journey sees a problem that they can solve by going through some journey, right? And it can end well or it can end badly. And along the way, they encounter a guide that helps them. So Luke Skywalker is the person on the journey with a problem, which is how do you get rid of you know, the Death Star and all these kinds of things? How do how the good guys prevail? Yoda is the wise advisor. And so on occasion, I think we, have, we in our practice have fancied ourselves as the hero. We're Luke Skywalker. When this book and, and this conversation about who's, who's in charge and who's making a difference clarifies that no, we're the Yoda, right? The mayor that want that wants to change and write a, a progressive zoning code, total hero. Um, you know, we're advising them. We're in the corner. We're not actually taking the blows to do that. Um, what this insight has given me is renewed respect and uh, just humility, frankly, around the series, the years and years and years of great, great leaders that we have worked with in our practice who are willing to stick a neck out and take a risk and go on the uncomfortable journey. And, you know, we've been lucky, maybe our good advice or a good choice of good leaders, but, you know, more often than not, we succeed. And so, uh, but anyway, the clarity that they're the hero, you're the Yoda, and, uh, and it's a journey. All three of those things, I think, are just incredibly insightful. So do you think that's true just for... Is it limited to consultants, or could any planner kind of take this framework and apply it? Oh, I think it's, it, you know, I see it in my marriage. I see it in my office. <laughs> now, it's, it's a pretty universal uh, thing, but it's, I think it is particularly helpful in, certainly in our practice, where we are committed to sustainability both uh, in the buildings we design and the places we design, and that more often than not, we are introducing new ideas, best practices, emerging practices, um, to do things differently. And so we're basically, when we're working with someone, we are, we're on some sort of journey. We're taking you somewhere that you maybe haven't been before or taking you further than you've gone before, those kinds of things. So, um, you know, it's every day I wake up and I think about it this way. Doug, you're Yoda. On the topic of new ideas, a few years ago, you authored a zoning practice piece describing the plan code gap. Tell us about that and how it impacts communities. Yeah, that was a it was a great zoning practice to write, and um, it came out of this insight. When you read a plan like a comprehensive plan, you know it's planners are great writers, and they just they seduce you. You're reading along the goals and objectives, just sound great, and all the right words are there. It just feels really good. And then you look at the like the zoning ordinance or the subdivision ordinance or other codes, the laws, are, basically. the laws that are meant to implement the happy words in the plan. And they have nothing to do with each other. And it's completely routine that there's this gap, this disconnect. So the zoning practice piece that we wrote did a couple things. Well, and it, most of which are about language. One is 
um, it took the sort of soft verbs, and planners are guilty of this, promote, encourage, words that actually are kind of me- make enhance. you feel good. Enhance is another one. They're, they make you feel good. Oh, some they're saying things I agree with, but they aren't specific enough to hold anybody accountable. So, so we call into question that kind of general language in favor of things like double in five years or reduce by half in 10 years, like the specifics. And that really comes from, you know, my training really as an architect. So to build a building, everything's got to be specified. It's got a schedule. It's got a cost. Somebody's doing it. Somebody's responsible. That precision is there. So, so that was one thing we did. And then the other thing is when people use adjectives, again, in goals and objective statements and plans, they all say the right thing. And they're, the language is really caught up. It's beautiful. But you'll read a comp plan. And they'll say, you know, we want to make this town sustainable or walkable or energy efficient, whatever. But when you... When you are then the person hired separately, often separately to write the law or the ordinance or the code, there are no breadcrumbs between these happy words in the comp plan and this law that you're about to write. So what we did was we created kind of a Rosetta Stone where it said, if you use the word walkable, that could or should translate into your subdivision code having a minimum intersection density as called for in lead ND credit three dot, 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 3,300 intersections per square mile, right? So that you're giving breadcrumbs to the code writers. And it also, I mean, the good news, bad news, it's more specific. Planners may resist because it now has you being a little more expert and getting into a little more detail, uh, sort of setting the stage for the project to come, the project to follow that may not be in your contract. So anyway, but, but it was meant to make it easy for people to just steal what we put in the zoning practice thing and put it in your comp plan so that there's little prompts. When I show up to write the code, I'm pointing at something else. I don't have to originate it. Yes. Uh, actually, in my time working at Far Associates, we had a client who shall remain unnamed, but a you know small to medium-sized city who I'm sure in the planning documents discussed wanting a vibrant 24-7 downtown, yet literally mixed-use development was not allowed in the downtown. So that has always stuck out to me as proof of this idea that no one would disagree with a vibrant downtown, but you're not going to get it if it completely empties out at 5 o'clock. So I hope this idea continues to catch on because it's really stuck with me. So you set up your own firm, and sustainability has been a cornerstone since the beginning. I also noticed that Far Associates is a just organization. What does that mean, and why is that important to you? Thanks for asking. So a just organization is, a, uh, in our case, a company that has been certified through the just protocol as a benefits corporation. So uh, what this, I wanted to do it because um, our work um, with clients was in trying to make the world a better place, to, uh, to be humane, to be sustainable, all those kinds of things. And um, certainly our office uh, aspired to be all those things, but the rigor of going through an actual third party certification through the JUST protocol identified some gaps. And so we've strengthened some of our employee benefits. We have increase the amount of time for people to do volunteer activities. We've just clarified all kinds of policies and procedures. Um, it's, it's the right thing to do um, to anybody out there who owns their firm or is in a leadership position in a firm. 
consider it. It's totally worth it, and there's no going back. And it's not that hard. It's really not that hard. There's a little bit of a learning curve, but if if you care about these things, it's it's not painful at all. And um, and I will also say that for retaining and recruiting young people who, um, and particularly planners who tend to be uh, do-gooder, idealistic people, it's it's. I think it will become the norm. And so, if you don't do it, there's the competitive threat that that someone else will. And so, uh, please, everyone, do it. It's the right thing to do, and it's a good. It makes you feel good too. So basically, sounds like if you've stated certain values, you're aligning your internal practices along with externally. Right. And then, and sort of like lead, there's levels. You can be, you know, in any given category, sort of low, medium and high. Um, there's also consideration given for the, for the different size of firms. It's easier for, uh, you know, Google to offer something than, you know, a five person shop. So, um, those things are all taken into account, but anyway, it's, it's a way of a private for a private sector entity to reflect civic and common values. And it's, you know, just do it. So you mentioned LEAD. Um, some folks, some professionals are still grappling with how to incorporate LEAD in their work. But correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like to some degree you've kind of moved on from LEAD. So what is that moving on? What's the next in your mind? Yeah. So our position is sort of complicated because um, on the desks, on the boards right now, we have three LEAD Platinum buildings and we have three LEAD ND communities. So to say that we're beyond lead, we're sort of deep in it, but, um, and let's talk about architecture and planning differently. So architecture, our work there is really focused on in the stratosphere in terms of super high performance buildings. And so terms like net zero energy, living building challenge, and passive house, those are where we're going in our building practice on the belief that we need to get the carbon out of our buildings in the next, you know, five or 10 years. So that's on the architecture side. So we are going beyond LEED because LEED is flexible and what we need is, frankly, inflexible. We need higher and higher standards uh, every year. On the planning side, LEED ND, I think, hasn't penetrated the planning profession the way I think any of us had hoped. Uh, and I've, you know, there's a few reasons for that. One is um, it's technical and has a lot of kind of performance metrics. And we've talked a bit uh, even on this podcast about how that's a little harder to do in planning contexts. But I think it's I, it's funny, I think of it in kind of tribal terms, which is um, you would be interested in and learn about Lead ND if you went, for example, to the Green Build Conference, which is the U.S. Green Building Council's annual conference. You know, in our office, we're fairly conference fluid. So an architect might go to that or to AIA to, or to another, you know, conference. Our planners might go to APA, but they might go to CNU. They might even go to Green Build. And so we are kind of cross-fertilizing and kind of trying to break down the silos. Um, I find in a lot of cases, uh, the APA conference is the one that people are hard, planners are hardwired to go to. One, their AICP ethics credits are easiest to get once every two years at the national conference. Um, oftentimes their employer will pay for one conference and that is to maintain their credentials and that's the APA conference. So if it isn't promoted you know, deeply at APA, where are you going to pick up on it? So for a planner today, the thing that they could know about Lead ND is that, um, you know, separate and apart from certifying individual projects, which is a fairly heavy lift, 
um, and may not be a good use of the tool for planners. It is incredibly useful in the way we were talking about in the zoning practice article, which is referencing it in your comp plan or a sub area plan as a performance metric. And so uh, take it apart. It's a tool that can be stolen and it's a third party reference. And so, you know, if someone questions you, well, what, when, you, when we said walkable and you picked that standard, how did you justify that? Well, you know, it was run through thousands of public comments over a six year period. It's battle tested. So it's not your opinion. It's the opinion of, you know, a national consensus group. So anyway, that's that's a powerful um, stamp of approval. Definitely. Very interesting, especially to separate out what's happening in planning versus architecture. In which areas has planning noticeably moved the needle, in your opinion? So I, I think, as I, as I said earlier, I think planning has really advanced a ton on community input. Um, you know, I don't know what we did when we before we got robust community input, but I think everybody does it now. Um, that's really great. I have also watched um, over the years uh, wearing two hats, the CNU Congress for New Urbanism hat and APA hat, and watched how in some ways those two agendas have begun to merge, that maybe in the old days planners were more writers and policy people, well, they're be picking up some design skills along the way, and I think that's really good. I know that APA has created, what is it, the Great Places Program, which started under um, uh, Bruce Knight, I think, uh, in, in the late 2000s, whatever. Uh, and that's an example, again, where planners are recognizing the value of physical design. So I think that's another thing that has really advanced a lot in the last few years. And, you know, urban design is not a profession per se, but it's, again, you know, it could reside under APA. It could be affili affiliated with CNU. Uh, but again, I think welcoming that and promoting that is a really big step forward. So where is there still more work to do? I'm sure you have some, some thoughts on this. Uh, we need to do a second show for the work to do. But no. Um, well, I think that back to the kind of topic of this podcast, which is Sustainable Nation, you know, there's a lot of sustainable nation comes directly out of the challenge we have in our practice of trying to advocate for and implement, you know, best ideas, best practices, the cutting edge, the future, all of these things. And so um, the more aggressive you or ambitious maybe is the word that you aspire to be in moving further, the more the resistance to change becomes evident. And so We've had to work really hard to understand the sort of pieces and steps of it and to freeze frame it for a second to look at it and analyze what we can do to overcome it. And so I think there's a whole, we're just at the really the beginning, I think, of a new kind of downslope in terms of figuring these things out, this empathy and planning, this framing of issues in different ways, um, this idea of uh, seeding neighborhoods to start conversations before the the official plan starts i think duh that seems like low-hanging fruit to me so um you know it's a little bit self-serving because my fantasy is that there's two copies of sustainable nation each of the country's five hundred thousand neighborhoods that would be one million books sold that'd be fine but if if all we did was sold books what a waste of time if what that did was two people were talking across the table and saying you know what my kids can't afford to live in my neighborhood. That makes me sad. Could we do something about that? And if they wrote that down on a piece of paper and you showed up, Courtney Kashima showed up as a planner and said, 
hey, I see you're having an, a conversation that your kids can't afford to live here. Well, that's called either workforce or affordable housing, and I know something about that, and I can help you. That is such a different conversation than I'm here from the government to make your life better for you. No. So I think, uh, I think that this idea of pre-planning, the kind of seeding of conversations before you start the plan, I'm really intrigued to see how that might play out. Doug, I want to thank you for the conversation we had today. I really love the depth and breadth of ideas we discussed. I'm wondering if this piqued someone's interest, what do they do next? Where do they go? What's kind of the uh, takeaway or where could someone find more information? Thanks, Courtney. It's been an amazing conversation. And uh, with the book launching, it's it's got a long tail. Um, for people that are interested in uh, content about the book, we have a website, sustainablenationbook.com. But we're also launching a not-for-profit called The Pattern Project. And I mentioned the six accelerants. The Pattern Project, we aim to be the kind of uh, landing page, the homepage for people that are interested in picking up these accelerants and applying them in their communities. One I'll mention to this planning audience that might you know catch on is I think that planning has an opportunity to embed itself in the American culture and not as a kind of top-down thing, but from an every neighborhood up thing. And so We've got this idea that we're going to start talking about over the next couple of years of a National Neighborhoods Day. Imagine every neighborhood in America one day, one day a year sat down and did a little planning exercise, a little friendly conversation around some donuts and said, what are we good at? What could we be better at? And what are we going to get done by next year? And wouldn't it, wouldn't it make all of our jobs easier when we show up to a community to do the plan? that we could collect all those statements and, and not start from scratch. So anyway, thanks for having me and uh, patternproject.org and uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.